You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. You know, we actually got an email to the podcast this week from someone saying that I should not, that I should change the introduction to the show because... They feel like it treats, it gives you too much deference. Like I treat you as a special guest star when I think that the exact wording of the email said, we all know folks ain't got shit to do, period. Huh. That's interesting. Uh, who sent this email? And can you, can you tell me their email address right now on the air? Because <laughs> I have some words. How about I just, I'll send it to you via secure transfer and then you can decide whether you put it out on your various social medias okay did they offer a you know an alternative no huh see that's the thing it's pretty much the standard intro to the show that i've been doing since day one i don't feel like it gives you that much deference because everyone knows if i felt like my introduction to the show gave you too much credit or pumped you up too much that i would change it yeah i would that's, that's never been in doubt uh, maybe here's where if other people feel the same way, if they have a, an introduction they think would, would be more egalitarian, you know, hit us up. Should we do a, a contest to script a new intro for the co-main event podcast? And be ready for some hate mail coming back at you if I don't like what I see. It's been a while since we ran a contest. There you go. I mean, I don't think we have anything really to give away, so I don't know if contest is the sure right word. Sure, we can figure something out. Yeah. That's a nice shirt you're wearing. I'm sure somebody would like that shirt. It's my dad pocket tee. Yeah. It's got a pocket in it. Put Is that my, salmon? It looks like it's salmon colored is how I would describe that. Really? I would say it's just red. No. You'd say salmon? Yeah, I'd say salmon. I think salmon is pinker than this. Wash it a few more times. Yeah, right. Uh, we got music again this week on the podcast from our friend, the Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out over on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Fifth Element. Check him out on Twitter at the Fifth Element or on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash the Fifth Element official. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is sponsored by Fulton and Rourke, a men's grooming company with products built for the way guys operate. Week after week, we get on here and we tell you about all the finery you can get yourself into at FultonandRourke.com, from the bar soap to the face wash, the solid colognes, the foamless shave cream. At this point, if you're not down with Fulton and Rourke, I feel like people are going to start looking askance. Oh, no. But just in case you're one of the slow adapters, Fulton and Rourke is still running their promotion for added savings just for CME listeners. Ben, tell them about that. You just go to FultonandRourke.com slash CME to sign up for their mailing list and get 20% off your next order. That will keep you up on the latest things coming out at FNR. They promise not to write more than once a week or so, and much like the Breakfast of Champions email, unsubscribing is so easy. There's the new DOP kit that they just debuted that's engineered to military-grade specifications. There's the aftershave cloth. There's all kind of stuff, and hey... Some breaking news coming in late to the co-main event podcast this week. Fulton and Rourke now ships products to Canada. Woo! So that's big news because this is a small company based in the United States. The owners are cool guys. We can totally vouch for them. Check out all their wares at 20% off by going to FultonandRourke.com slash CME and signing up for the FNR mailing list 
today. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So wait, is Michael Bisping one of the greatest fighters in UFC history or not? Because I feel unprepared if that's true. And in round number two, we all remember swagger and cowboy Dan Henderson, whose last act as an active UFC fighter was to throw a weird cartwheel kick that came nowhere close to landing. And in round number three, is it possible that sweet and sassy Musasi is actually getting kind of sassy? Yow. All that plus just saying stuff? Are you fucking kidding me? And Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little bit of Master Tweet Theater, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Darren Duarte. He writes, Hey guys, how long should we keep doing this with BJ Penn? Since he announced his comeback, this is the third time we've had either a date or an opponent set for him, only to have to scrap it and head back to the drawing board. Considering he hasn't exactly been awesome in his most recent UFC fights, is it even worth trying to see it if a fourth time's the charm with BJ? Uh... I feel like, who are you asking here? Because we would say no. Yeah. Uh, but we you, don't really have the power to I, make that happen. I'll tell you what, too. This most recent time, which just uh, happened this this last week, we wrote about it in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter this week, uh, and at least had a part in the cancellation of this upcoming uh, uh, fight night event, which was supposed to go down from Manila, although there were reports out about the uh, Philippine government's drug testing plans that may have also played a role allegedly in scuttling this UFC event. Uh, but for me, this, I, you know, I have to say that after BJ Penn dropped out of this scheduled fight with Ricardo Lamas, this was the one like Darren Duarte where I was like, okay, how long are we going to do this? And it almost feels like, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but like maybe the UFC is, feels the same way just because it seems like every time BJ Penn drops out of one of these fights, he gets put in a more difficult fight. After That's that. true. That's the, uh, this, the matchup with Ricardo Lamas definitely made it seem that way. Uh, or like maybe the UFC had gone from thinking, you know what? Instead of trying to find a way to ease into a BJ Penn comeback situation, let's try to find a way to pump somebody else up a couple notches off of BJ Penn's name, uh, while it's still in good condition. But I don't know. Can you really see it getting to a point where he says, okay, I'm healed now. I'm back in training. Now I want to fight. Let's go. Let's rebook it. Give me Lamas or give me somebody else, whoever. I'll come in there and fight. And can you see Dana White and the UFC saying, nah. Not really. I think it comes down to BJ Penn. Like the physical toll of this thing would have to kind of stack up on him enough that I think he would call it quits. And I don't know if that is a possibility. The guy's 37 years old at this point. I believe he's one five and one dating back to 2010. So we're not talking about a guy who has won a tremendous amount of fights here. Uh, and you know what? I will say this in favor of BJ Penn. And that is that after 18 months away for this initial retirement, it seems to me as though he has tried to do everything right in this comeback. He's not training in Hawaii. He's down there at Greg Jackson's. Uh, in, in Albuquerque. He may Is be he still splitting. there? I think he was kind of back and forth. He might him. be splitting time, but I talked to uh, a guy I know in Albuquerque who said that he saw him there real recently. So I think he's been, uh, he's been spending a lot of time at Greg Jackson's. It seems like if I had to guess, I would say BJ Penn woke up one day, retired and realized he was the guy that we all thought never lived up to his potential. And he was like, okay, I'm going to make one more run. And this time I'm going to do it the right way. 
Most of that is conjecture on my part, but from the outside looking in, it certainly seems like he's tried to do things the right way. So the fact that, uh, you know, he's been, uh, taken out of the last two fight bookings by via injury, uh, my heart goes out to the guy a little bit, but at the same time, I do feel like we're, we are bordering in on like somewhat ridiculous territory. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that he does seem to be doing it the right way and has, has seemed to get a little more serious about it. But I still come back to the question of what is there left for him here? I mean, if he's doing it for himself that, you know, he wants to prove something to himself or he, you know, he wants to see if he can go out there and still compete. It seems like he he keeps learning that same lesson. He keeps giving that same speech, being like, okay, I had to do it just to find out that I can't do it. And then a few months later, he decides that he wants to do it again. I don't know. I think that if you're doing it because you want to add something to your legacy, that's the wrong reason to do it. Because I just don't see that really happening right now at his age uh, and the, the state of any of the divisions that he might compete in. If you're doing it because... You just want to prove something to yourself, maybe? Okay, then then fine. Go out there and do it. Um, if you're doing it because you want to put off trying to figure out what the rest of your life is going to look like once fighting professionally is no longer a part of it, I mean, you're just kind of delaying the problem. You're You're not fixing it. And eventually you're going to have to face that probably pretty soon. Next question this week comes to us from Doug Ty, who writes, More like the poster man, am I right? Now, see, when you sent these questions earlier, I read this one and I was just baffled. You did. You had to reply to me asking me to explain it to you. Yes. And uh, I will, just in case anyone out there in listener land is also lost, this is a, a question that refers to Jimmy Manoa, who got a big win this past weekend at UFC 204 over Ovin St. Preux. Uh, the, uh, the long-standing... UFC light heavyweight is nicknamed the poster boy, but I would point out he's 36 years old. So I think Doug Ty makes a solid point here, more like the poster man. Yes. Now let me let me also hit you with this. According to his Wikipedia page, Jimmy Manawa's full legal name is Samuel Baba Jimmy Manawa. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, which if you were going by Baba Jimmy Manawa, I think you, I would be more apt to remember you. The poster boy, the poster man. If you were going by Baba Jimmy Manawa, I don't feel like you'd need a nickname. I feel like that's kind of just awesome. Thank also, you. now that I'm looking at his Wikipedia uh, page, the first like note in there after the initial kind of intro under mixed martial arts career, it says, Manawa began training in mixed martial arts in 2007 following a weightlifting injury where he ruptured a chest muscle while oh. bench pressing 185 kilograms, in parentheses, 407 plus pounds. Um, which I feel like is awesome. Like it's a great way to make sure we all know like, okay, you, you hurt yourself lifting weights, but you were going hard, bro. I tell like, you throw what, throw the weight in there. Don't let them think I just hurt myself. <laughs> like, you know, warming up with like, you know, 180 or something. That's a self edit. You think like Jimmy <laughs> Manuel went in there and added that himself just so everyone would know. I don't see a notation to show where the source is cited here. That he that was, one. he was going hard on chest day. Now, see, I was going to say I could, I feel like I could live my entire life without ever rupturing a muscle in my chest. And that make, frankly makes me feel a lot better about three sets of 10 at 135. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, he goes out there. He gets this knockout over uh, OSP. And it was a pretty knockout. Uh, I mean, from Jimmy Manuel's end, it was yeah, damn near Ovin ugly. Yeah, St. Cruz out there doing the Rashad Evans against uh, 
against Lyoto Machida with the leg tucked under him and his or, eyes rolling back in his head. Or the Crow Cop against Gabriel Gonzaga. I would accept that also. Nasty-ass <laughs> knockouts is yeah. all that I'm saying. Leg all folded up underneath there. And I, I put this on Twitter when the fight started that when I heard Jimmy Manoa announced and they announced him as like the number nine ranked light heavyweight and I was kind of like, oh, what? really? Jimmy Manoa is, is, is in the top ten for the light heavyweight? Because, you know, you, you just think of his stay in the UFC so far and it hasn't been super distinguished. I mean, he kind of debuted with like three straight wins that all came via somewhat weird injuries for the most part. And then as soon as he jumped up to kind of next level of the division, he gets, you know, wrecked by Alexander Gustafson, uh, wins that decision uh, over Jan Blachowicz and then uh, gets knocked out by Anthony Johnson. And so it seems like you're just not sure where this guy fits in there right and yet still fits in the top 10 because that's the state of light heavyweight division because that's a trash division right now now i would say jimmy manoa may be the archetypal light heavy ufc light heavyweight fighter because here's a dude 36 years old ranked number nine or ten in the division has been real good against the uh cyril diabate kyle kingsbury jan blakovitz's of the world not so much against anthony johnson and alexander gustafson although although maybe in his defense that's a big step up in competition but that also it kind of t- is typical of the light heavyweight division that it's like you know you can get up to six seven eight those ranking spots and everything is kind of interchangeable. And then when you get up into the top five, it jumps up in in talent level in a hurry. And there's just really no middle ground. And then I, he goes out and gets this big win against Ovin St. Preux, which is obviously the biggest win of his UFC career so far. Uh, but it's still the kind of win where you're like, that's like arguably bad for the division, I guess. Like, I don't know that it matters that much because it didn't seem like OSP was a dude that was at 33 years old at this point, suddenly going to make that jump from talented prospect to like championship contender. Uh, but at the same time, 36 year old Jimmy Manuel knocks him out in the second round. And now I think that you're right to point out that the, the, like the, the feeling we're left with is, well, shit. Now what do we do with this guy? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it seems like if you're Jimmy Manoa, how is a part of you not thinking like, all right, here's the part in my career where usually then they match me up against somebody tougher and I get knocked back down to this previous level? I mean, maybe if you're Jimmy Manoa, you could take some kind of like solace in the fact that there's a lot of uh, Antonio Rogerio Nogueras floating around. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of uh, Shogun who is out there that you might get matched up. Oh, wait, did he already lose? No, he hasn't fought Shogun, right? Uh yeah, you're thinking. I I know what you're thinking of, though, but I don't know. The worst case scenario here, if you are uh, Jimmy Manoa, is that they take a look at you and you're like, and they're like, okay, this seems like a good dude. Maybe we could feed to Nikita Krylov, okay, <laughs> or a Misha Sirkinov type, like one of oh, those, no, like Sirkinov, somewhat please, no. lower level light heavyweights. But they're like, how do we get this guy over? Oh, maybe we send him out there to to beat up the guy who just knocked out Ovin St. Preux. By the way, I think were you thinking of Ovin St. Preux's knockout of Shogun Hua? It's possible. Okay. Who knows? I still can't get past how the chest injury while weightlifting, how that made him go into mixed martial arts. Because it doesn't seem like mixed martial arts is really something you do while you're recovering from a muscle injury. Like if, it, if he was on the, an Olympic curling team and they were like, he took up curling because he needed something to do while he was recovering from getting hurt doing something really tough and physical. Fine. Mixed martial arts? I question this origin story, is what I'm saying. I think I was confusing 
uh, 35-year-old New Zealander James Tahuna. Ah, there you go. For 36-year-old Jimmy Manawa. They both end in A. Exactly. Both named Baba Jimmy. That's not true. I made that part up. Next question this week comes from to us from Steve Grau. Steve Grau. He writes, Josh Simon passed away at 28 years old, and that is a fucking bummer. I, like many, enjoyed following his story because he seemed like a genuinely good and intelligent guy uh, that had been through some shit. In this case, uh, in the cage and as a writer, Simon was one of those guys uh, that was just hard not to like. No real question here. I was just hoping that the two of you could share some thoughts and or experiences that you have had with Josh Simon. Yeah, that one is a fucking bummer. Uh, especially because, as I think we talked about in the Breakfast of Champions, there aren't a whole lot of just super good, likable, nice guys in MMA. And it really, especially ones that also have an interest in writing about the sport while they're competing in it and doing a good job of that. And to lose one, that seems uh, like just a really shitty deal for everybody. Yeah, I would say, like, I didn't really know Josh personally. I think we exchanged one or two emails when his book came out, but that was it. But like I put on Twitter after his passing, uh, he seemed like one of the best people, like one of this industry's very best people. And obviously it's a tragedy to lose anyone at 28 years old. Uh, because the, like, the further away that you and I get from that age, I think the more you can correct me if you don't think this is true, but I think like the more you start to get the idea, well, shit, man, you don't even really know who you are at 28 years old. Yeah. Uh, so it, it seems especially tragic for someone with as much promise uh, and as much talent in different areas to lose their life at that age. Uh, and the one, the only one thing I would add about Josh that to what you said is that he seemed like a super thoughtful dude, yeah. which seemed like one of the things to me that, that set him aside, especially in his like fledgling career as an MMA journalist, where he wrote a lot about, uh, the struggles of professional fighters, uh, over at, I believe bloody elbow. Um, and the, like the combination of talents that I feel like he had that made him, really special and like a, a a quality talent in this industry was that like he's a professional fighter and a, and a pretty darn good professional fighter, but he also had the writing chops and the thoughtfulness to kind of write about that lifestyle in a way that very few other people could. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's very rare that you find a person who actually has that experience who can pull off writing about it as a journalist as well as Josh could. So uh, it was a huge loss as far as I was concerned, and and there's no real positive spin on it, ex you know, except to say I think we were lucky to to have him as long as we did. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I got to know him a little bit from working on that story. Uh, we did a story for USA Today where he talked about when he came back and he wanted to fight on either it was either the anniversary of his girlfriend's death, who died uh, in a car accident, or on her birthday. I can't remember which one. It was against uh, Eddie Gordon at UFC 181, and so we did a story beforehand. Uh, and it was one of those guys where I talked to him and then I talked to people who knew him for the story. And when you talk to everybody who knew him, you know, it, he was one of those guys where it seemed like nobody just knew him. Everybody loved him. Uh, and then I went to that fight and saw him. It was backstage doing the scrum interviews and he came back there after getting that, that head kick. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit then and he insisted on giving me a hug while he was all sweaty and, and gross and, but like didn't really give me a choice in the matter, just enveloped me in a hug. And I was just kind of like, 
all right, I, I would be annoyed that I have to walk around with your sweat on my, my good shirt, but how can you be mad at that guy? Um, yeah, it's just, it's terrible to lose a guy like that. Next question this week, last question this week, comes to us from Ryan Tucker. He writes, gentlemen, with Dana White shooting down rumors of Anderson Silva versus George St. Pierre at UFC 206 by saying, quote, that fight is definitely not going to happen. Please discuss this, quote, not true, so not true super fight and when we should expect the announcement. Well, first, I think first I think for, we need to have UFC Tonight report that it'll never, ever happen in a million years. And then, like, a week from that date is when we'll get the announcement. But it won't be announced on UFC Tonight. It'll be announced, like, either on Twitter or on ESPN. I feel like Anderson Silva versus George St. Pierre is the great lost super fight of modern mixed martial arts. Because this is the one that we talked about for a long time uh, when... These were the two most dominant forces in the UFC in their respective weight classes when George St. Pierre was dominating everybody at welterweight with his takedowns and his top control and his ground and pound. And Anderson Silva was dominate, dominating everyone at middleweight uh, with his obviously like next level striking skills. And it seemed like we bandied about for years whether or not George St. Pierre could move up. Uh, to middleweight to fight Anderson Silva or whether or not they could meet at a catchweight somewhere. Uh, and George St. Pierre, frankly, never seemed like he was that into it, but I like not necessarily for competitive reasons. I feel like he always felt like if he went through the trouble of adding the bulk to go up to 185, that there was no way he could ever go back to 170, which... Because he never take the steroid. Right, exactly. There was, you know, no no end of consternation surrounding that that decision. But it's in a weird way... I've felt like for the past couple of years, it has almost made more sense than it ever has just because, you know, both these guys, assuming George St. Pierre can get someone at the UFC to pick up the phone and call him back and have him come in to have a, another fight in, in the octagon. Uh, you know, the, the, both those guys have somewhat less to lose now. I feel like we're in this era of, uh, money weight matchup fights that are just designed to make money on pay-per-view. Uh, and you know, they're both kind of like easing into their golden years a little bit, at least in their fighting lives. So, so maybe it makes more sense to do that now than it has before. Uh, but I don't know, man, I don't know if this is actually going to happen. Not only does it make more sense, it does also, as we love to talk about, um, it serves as the kind of twilight zone wish fulfillment that we get in MMA where, Oh, yeah? You can wish on the monkey paw that you're going to get Anderson Silva versus GSP, uh, and you're going to make that wish in, like, 2010? Um, yeah, it'll, it'll come true uh, six years later. That would feel about right, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does seem like that's how it goes down. It would be almost like Fedor showing up in the UFC yeah. right now. Be careful what you wish for, I guess, is the moral of the story when handling the monkey paw. <laughs> that's kind of gross, man. Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss. On all the days when we're not recording the podcast, something always happens. Some news always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We'd like to think of that it's occasionally funny. Uh, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
man, at this point, I'm having a hard time getting my arms around the legacy of one Michael the Count Bisping. Because it feels flatly ridiculous, I guess, to consider him one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time. I think if you asked people in the world today, they might tell you he's not even one of the top five middleweights in the UFC right now, let alone, you know, being mentioned in the same sentence with the all-time greats. But at the same time, the resume of Michael Bisping is kind of dope at this point. It's incredibly dope. Once you consider 10 years in the UFC, the all-time wins leader now after this unanimous decision victory over Dan Henderson on Saturday at UFC 204, uh, consecutive wins over Anderson Silva, Luke Rockhold, and Dan Henderson, albeit perhaps a flagging version of two of those guys. Uh, you know, and then like, you know, like we always say, the, the ultimate fighter season three championship, his importance to the UFC during the early days of its international expansion. And then maybe on top of everything else, just being, uh, not only middleweight champion, I guess we should point out, but like also the kind of dude who can go out and sell a fight with anybody on the roster, which especially in this day and age, I think is, is considerable and something that we have to mention. So well, I, and, and not only can he sell that fight, but he won't sell it in a way where it feels like he's selling it. He will, he will start up a damn blood feud with them. Yes. No matter what they want to do about it, they're going to end up hating Michael Bisping. He, they can't stop themselves and he is going to believe it himself, at least for the duration of the lead up to the fight. So I guess my introductory question, Ben, is who is Michael Bisping at this point? Who is this guy? Man, that's a tough question because I feel like my initial response is to say I still need more information. Because like you said, if you wanted to go around putting some asterisks on recent accomplishments, you could. Yeah. You could say, you know what, you want a questionable, at least somewhat decision over Anderson Silva and a very much aging Anderson Silva. Um, then you, you know, you legitimately knocked out Luke Rockhold. No one could take that one away from you. And then you won another decision again, at least somewhat questionable, at least some, uh, argument to be made there against the oldest possible version of Dan Henderson. If he really sticks with his retirement. Um, so on paper, if you don't know the circumstances of a lot of those fights, it sounds a lot better. He beat Anderson Silva, then Luke Rockhold, then Dan Henderson. That sounds like a just murderer's row. Right. If all you had was the written record. Yes. Um, if you were there for the actual fights, it might feel a little different. And so I feel like I'm still waiting to see, all right, let's see him defend the belt against somebody in the top five. Because there's so many good guys in middleweight right now. You could see him defend the belt against, you know, Yoel Romero, Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold again. Um Jacare Souza, any of those guys, and it's going to tell you something. Like, there, there's really no way for it not to feel like, okay, that would be a real litmus test to see, to find out how we think of Michael Bisping now. Um, and yet, as Danny Downs pointed out, and we were talking about this in Trading Shots, are we just going to keep doing that? If he goes out there and he wins, like, a, a very narrow decision over Jacare Souza, are we just going to be like, I don't know, man, I'm not sold yet. Let's see if he can beat Weidman. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because at this point, even though the middleweight division spent most of this year kind of chasing its tail, uh, shit is about to heat up, as we've talked about a couple of times before on the podcast. And you would think that next, barring something crazy like George St. Pierre comes out of retirement and they make that fight, Michael Bisping against George St. Pierre. You can just uh, hear the cash register dinging. You sure? Yeah, there's just like... Uh, 
an ATM on tilt, just spitting out money. <laughs> that's uh, how it works. You just tilt it over, right? And the yeah. money just falls right out. Yeah. Yes. I think that's how it goes. Uh, if, if, you know, barring something crazy like that, he's going to get one of these top five guys, right? Either Rockhold, Jacare, Weidman, or Romero. So let's say, just for argument's sake, it is Yoel Romero. Like, what is at stake for Michael Bisping in that fight? Because that feels like a very fine line for him between all-time greatness and, like, just some dude that fell bass-ackward into the middleweight title and, like, beat a couple of old-timers. Okay, well... I, I mean, that's I, I, I wouldn't say that's who he is, but I think that's like the devil's advocate yeah, position. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people would take that position if he went out there, say, and got knocked out by Yoel Romero. But I also think we, we should not fall prey to the all-or-nothing thinking there. Like, even if you want to say, like, okay, he beat two old versions of two formerly great fighters, and even then he beat them by via questionable decisions— you still got to give the guy credit for, you know, basically getting knocked out at the end of a round versus Anderson Silva and then getting back up and coming out there and, and taking the fight. Uh, getting dropped and nearly put away twice by Dan Henderson, having his eye just blow up into a bloody, uh, swollen mess and still going out there and taking it to Dan Henderson and winning that fight. I mean, you can't just be like, he was never that good and he got lucky because he is, he is really good. And seemingly getting and really better, tough. I would say, yeah. which is weird to say about a guy who is 37 years old, especially a guy who now uh, kind of prides himself on being the poster boy for fighting clean, right? Like as one of the guys that uh, fought all of the guys who were on TRT during the the, uh, the TRT heyday. Yeah. Well, we, and we used to talk about that, that no one seemed to have been more negatively affected by the TRT era than Michael Bisping. And yet now, if you want to craft a narrative... You could say in the post-USADA world, lo and behold, suddenly Michael Bisping is the champ. How about that? Yeah, and and it seems to be a situation. I mean, that could be part of it, but it also seems to be a situation where he is getting actively getting better. Like he just either that or we just so like unfairly and unbelievably shortchanged this dude for his entire career. I think there's a little of that, honestly. Well, I, yeah, I think so too. But it also seems like maybe it does feel like he's coming into his own a little bit here. Like previous to he gets that win over CB Dalloway at UFC 186 to kind of kick off this current uh, five fight win streak that he's on. Previous to that, he had lost to all of the best fighters that he had fought. You know, Dan Anderson, Vanderlei Silva, Chael Son, and Vitor Belfort. Yes, I just recited a uh, a who's who of the <laughs> testosterone, like all those dudes in the waiting room of one testosterone replacement <laughs> therapy clinic. Are you but reading then, that car and driver? Oh, go. Then Can also like Tim, Tim Kennedy and Luke Rockhold. So before this run, you could argue like just just like I said. Uh, about James Tahuna earlier, like Michael Bisping is out here beating the shit out of Jason Miller and Jorge Rivera, but then getting beat up by, by Chael Sonnen and Tim Kennedy. Uh, but now, like, that seems to have, that seems to have turned around a little bit. Uh, and I have no answers for why that is, except that maybe he's just perfecting his craft. Maybe he just understands who he is now. Uh, and he seems to have a lot more heart than maybe we ever gave him credit for. And what is the deal also? with Michael Bisping's chin at this point, because he's he got popped in this fight a couple of times with the H-bomb, which has been known to knock somebody unconscious. Uh, and, you know, just like you said, just like in the Anderson Silva fight, he keeps on coming. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think that is a, a testament to his toughness. And I, I think we did make the mistake, and I mean the collective we in MMA, uh, of doing exactly what Charles McCarthy told me he once did when he signed up to fight Bisping kind of early in, in Bisping's UFC stay, which is you didn't like the guy personally, and so 
you didn't take him seriously skill wise and that proved to be a mistake and i think that a lot of people did it because he has that really abrasive kind of personality where he uh can he can make enemies quickly he's one of those people who seems to encounter a whole lot of people who are idiots so much so that it makes you wonder right. like like if you if you meet three jerks a day at some point you have to start thinking that that you are and he but he does have a little bit of self-awareness about that cuz i remember doing a story on him once where i asked why do you think you end up in so many like really heated rivalries doesn't it seem like the common denominator is you uh and he was kind of like yeah yeah no it does seem like it uh so i mean i think that that sometimes gets in the way of people being able to appreciate skill-wise what he can do and at the same time you think about all those top guys that could be potentially the next challenger for his title against whom would he be a favorite chad yeah that's that's a really good question i don't think he would be the favorite against any of those guys but uh that's why they have the fights right that's why they that's why we're going to do that uh as another positive thing to say about michael bisping though uh, and there was some back and forth on Twitter this past weekend at UFC 124 or UFC 204, uh, about getting asked after the fight, who you want to fight next. And everybody only always says, Oh, I don't know whoever the UFC wants me to fight next. Uh, and some people pointed out, maybe it's not fair to ask people that question after they've just spent 25 minutes getting punched in the head. Uh, but Michael Bisping comes out in classic Michael Bisping fashion, Ben, and cuts a damn promo on everyone in the top half of the top 10. Just, Everybody. Yeah, like either he had been waiting for it or that's just the thing Michael Bisping thinks to himself all the time. While he's standing there, as the Wu-Tang Clan would say, with all types of fucking blood coming out of his head, God, face all mangled up on his way to the hospital. Like he's going to he's going to pass the ma- the mic back to you and then go immediately to the hospital to seek medical attention and still cuts an awesome promo. You know what my favorite thing about Michael Bisping is though continues to be to this day is not only does he at this point have the iconic walkout song, yeah, the blur song uh, which I feel like I'm talking myself into Michael Bisping as the total prop package. <laughs> like every few seconds, I think of something else I like about him. The fucking walk. I love the way Michael Bisping walks to the cage. And if you didn't see it, I recommend if you have it DVR'd at home, UFC 204, go back and watch Michael Bisping walk through the backstage area on his way to the cage because he is fucking doing the Vince McMahon walk. <laughs> and he's been doing it for years. Yeah, he has. And, like he used to make me so mad. Like he's just like walking a, down to the pub to deal with some lout. To collect a bet is what it looks like. <laughs> like he knows he's already won. He's some, going down there to get his five quid or whatever. Some lout called his 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 wife, his his bird, uh, a bad name. And he's going to go down there and deal with him. We are going to get emails from English people <laughs> at this point. Uh, okay, well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little bit of Master Tweet Theater. Uh, it's been a while since we did that, so we're looking forward to it. And that's going to start right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I have apologized and I am ready to put it behind me. What What were you apologizing for? Everything. Everything okay. up to this point. I am very sorry, but I think we can agree it doesn't matter now. <laughs> well, at least it's all behind you. Uh, is there a theme this week? 
Uh, yes, sir. There is. The theme is hard times. All right. Uh, I like at least the idea of this theme. I'll say that. Hard times. People struggling with the difficulty of being a fighter or sometimes just typing a Twitter message. People <laughs> See, having a hard we're time. All, we're already stretching the boundaries here. But And yet, again, this seems like one where it should not be difficult. Yeah, to find hard times. That's what you think. Now, we'll see how it goes. All right. When you're ready, Sir Nigel. Yes, let us begin. <clears throat> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is again brought to you by Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes. Oh, God. The cigarette that is definitely not for kids. Major Tex Armstrong is the last cowboy on the moon. But after a hard day of space wrangling, he's the first to crack open a soothing pack of Cowboy Astronauts. Once he's made sure there are no kids around... Kids can't handle the rich flavor of cowboy astronauts, <laughs> nor are they allowed to try. If you want to be like Major Tex Armstrong during the brief window between your 18th birthday and when your identity is fully formed, try cowboy astronauts. Get along, moon doggies. They're just for grown-ups. Oh, God. You know what? Is cowboy astronaut cigarettes, are they publicly traded? Because I feel like buying some stock right now. It's skyrocketing, sir. It's jumping up to the, to the moon. <laughs> All right. With that, I guess tweet the first. <clears throat> tweet the first. I just want you to know that I came from absolutely nothing. Destitute. I know I have greatness inside of me. I've seen the trenches. That's intense. Yeah, and see, again, this is why you pay the extra money to have a theatricalist come in here. Did you hear the... You could feel it in his voice, yeah. you know? No, I believed it. Those were hard times, Chad. Yeah. Uh, you got any guesses here? Oh, boy. Not really, but could that be embattled UFC welterweight Mike Perry? Huh, okay. Man, it seems I mean, too coherent, yeah. but okay. Um, I'm going to say Cody Garbrandt. Okay, that's a good guess. Both fine guesses, both unfortunately wrong. It is Dustin Poirier. Okay. Oh, all right. You can tell it wasn't Mike Perry because it didn't contain the N-word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Thanks, UFC, for the retirement pension. LOL. No matter. Still doing big things. Book is crushing it. And I've got my first big open house okay. tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Got it. Yeah. I think we can agree that that's the crippler Chris Levin. Yeah. And then I saw today maybe he was tweeting that his car got totaled. So oh. a lot of ups and downs over there for the, the cat smasher. You know, gutters and strikes, man. That's life, I guess. Did he sell that house? Do we know? Is he? He I needs don't even that know commission. If he could make it to the open house after the, reading the tweet about his car. Well, that's unfortunate. Best of luck to Chris Levin, and here's hoping for a speedy recovery from the last fifteen years of your life. <clears throat> tweet the third. If you're gonna star in a porno, make it a full-length feature in Spanish, and make sure finish. What? What was that at the end? And make sure finish dot dot dot. Again, I find myself confronting the question, Vanderlei Silva or Jessica I. Yeah. And I'm going to say Jessica I, although I feel like it's wrong. Yeah, that's... See, that not enough mistakes in there. Yeah. Not enough, like, autocorrect errors. Uh, boy, I really... I have no idea here. Uh... Is this a Spanish pun or something well, I, you don't know about? I see. The only thing I can think is that it must be a Spanish language fighter, right? 
Is there any like weird spelling or anything we need to know about? No, but the word star is a star emoji. Oh, God, that makes it seem more like Jessica. I know. I, I feel a little better now. Um, I have no guess. Can I have no guess? That is some... Y- Yair Rodriguez. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> First Spanish-speaking <laughs> UFC fighter to come to my mind. Why? Both fine guesses. Both, I am sure, welcome in the adult film industry, but <laughs> both wrong. It is Phil Baroni. Oh, man. Wow, the return of the poet, yeah. Phil Baroni. Inevitable and... in retrospect, is it not? <laughs> but he kind of slipped back in pretty subtly when you think well, about it. I mean, give him credit, I guess. All right. As, are we to understand that Phil Baroni has recorded a pornographic film? Would you be surprised to find out? <laughs> not <laughs> in the least. Wait, also, this is hard times? Eh, rock hard, sir. <laughs> God. Oh, <clears throat> Sometimes you just have to say yes to life. That's how you <laughs> succeed. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. We had a fun last night. I'm in fight camp tomorrow. Fuck. Flat mouth emoji. Thumbs down emoji. Lightning bolt emoji. Tornado emoji. Tornado emoji. <laughs> I don't like fight. I'm not happy. Ha ha ha. But do it for the all ladies. All right, first of all, that's Teruto Ishihara. Yeah. Second of all, how long was that tweet? Surprisingly not very long. Only two lines. The trick is to convert all of your words into hieroglyphics, <laughs> which the Japanese were doing already. It's not that strange to use emojis if you have a pictographic language. I, I guess I question what the tornado uh, is there to represent. It blows, perhaps? Hmm. All right. That's all I can think of. But who knows what the lightning is? Also, uh, Teruto uses the uh, black thumbs down emoji consistently. I'm not sure that's important. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, though, for doing the research. Someone else pointed it out to me. I don't see color in emojis. All right. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. I said I would win, and I did. You know that's yeah, Michael Bisping, because he wants say. to do the voice. Yeah, it's- that's what I was going to say, too. Michael Bisping. It is. It is Michael Bisping. He said he was going to win, and somehow he did. All right. Do your voice. <clears throat> I said I would win, and I did. <laughs> Thank you, Dana White. <laughs> Thank you, UFC. Thank you to my win family and everyone in my <laughs> God, I hate you. Yeah. Well, I guess that about does it for Master Treat Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about a young boy who wins a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to watch chocolate made by a whale. But the whale is a prisoner of tiny men. I see. And what's it called? It's called Free Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And what role do you play? I play a talented but underused whale actor, Sir... <laughs> Also, it just now occurred to me that that last Michael Bisping tweet was the opposite of hard times. Those yes. were good times. 80% compliance with this week's theme. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, we wondered at length what would become of Dan Henderson if 
46-year-old UFC fighter would actually follow through on his vow that win or lose, this was going to be his final fight. Uh, we wondered whether winning or losing would make him more or less likely to follow through on that. Then he goes out there. He nearly puts Michael Bisping away and kind of caps the storybook ending for himself where he can retire on top. Doesn't quite do it. Still keeps the fight close enough that maybe you think he has a chance of winning a decision. Then he loses it. It seems like the bitterest possible way for him to go out, in a sense. And still it seems like he's going to keep his promise. And so, let's say that's it. Let's say that is it for Dan Henderson. How do you remember Hendo? I mean, I feel a little bit like the the quintessential question that we just asked about Michael Bisping, who is Michael Bisping, goes for Dan Henderson as well. Because I think, you know, obviously there are people out there who would make the argument that he's one of the greatest of all time, that he maybe he's the greatest American mixed martial artist of all time. Uh, but I, I can't decide. I don't know, man. And I mean, the obvious thing is that we all like dan henderson there's just no way to not like the guy with the swaggering kind of casual cowboy attitude and the uh the fighting style the longevity the pushing the barbecue across the street on the suredog.com photo the getting the trampoline off the roof uh <laughs> the getting into a a trash talk thing with Michael Bisping where Bisping unleashes two and a half minutes of insults and Dan smiles and then just replies like with a one-liner that kind of puts it all to rest right there. That's a, that's quintessential Hendo right there. Yeah, I think somebody said that he uh, he's like a, a walking, an actual Clint Eastwood character, <laughs> yes. which seems right. Like that's just who he is. But at the same time, those good feelings that we have for Dan Henderson – arguably make it possible for us to overlook stuff like his testosterone replacement use, his testosterone replacement therapy use, and whether or not when he did stuff like knock out Fedor Emelianenko in 2011, if he was all jacked up on TRT uh, back in Strike Force, you know, and I, the thing that the thing that separates him, I think, from like a Chael Sonnen or a Vitor Belfort is that Dan Henderson never failed a drug test, which is kind of the obvious out to that question. But at the same time, like the guy just walked away at 46 years old and was at the top of his game throughout his early to kind of mid forties, I guess you could say, uh, that feels like to say he never failed a drug test. So we think that his TRT use was all good feels a little bit too easy to me. Well, yeah, I think the other claim he could make is that he looked exactly the same after TRT was, was banned from the game. You kind of have to either decide that he wasn't abusing it uh even though you know that's already kind of a, a loaded way of thinking about it um but you know you look at a guy like Vitor Belfort who was on TRT and now that's gone and man does he look different he looks like a radically different person and Dan Henderson looks exactly the same and but he also has the advantage of you know people are going to look and see if there's a drop off in your ability after you can no longer use that stuff and to any extent that there was, it seemed like it could be attributable just to age. Uh, because, god damn, he's 46 years old and still a punch or two away from winning the UFC middleweight title. But then, when you actually watch him in that fight, for a lot of it, it just, it seemed like he had somehow made the best of what he had to work with. Because at times he's moving around the cage and it's like watching like somebody drive around an old car where... Parts are held on with duct tape. 
you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that could just fall out of the damn thing at any time. You're, you're riding in the passenger seat and you, it's the floor so rusted you can see the street going by under you. You just don't know if you're going to make it to the destination. And then some punk kid pulls up next to you and tries to rev his engine at the light. It could still go. It could still go for, you know, one little burst there. Uh, and somehow he made that work, almost made that work to all the way to a middleweight title. Yeah, this was another one of those weird fights where, for the most most part, one guy seemed like he dominated, and I would say that guy was Michael Bisping. And then near the end of almost every round, he got cracked right in his face. Uh, harder in that one shot than all of the other punches that he had landed on Dan Henderson, which... You know, there, I know there's been a lot of online fetching about the, the decision and who scored what this way, that way. Uh, I try to talk about that stuff as little as possible on this show because it's so subjective. That I just don't feel like there's any real answers at this point. But like this, this was like one of those, uh, fights that are real hard to score just because of that. Like, how do you score the round? Do you score the, the round to, to the guy that won? four minutes and 30 seconds of it or do you just score it for the guy who just absolutely obliterated him in the last 30 seconds it's it's a it's a personal preference i guess you would say <laughs> okay. at the end of the day uh but but yeah kendo came very close uh, you know i don't know that you're going to take a guy's title in england in a championship fight with a fight that that's cl- that that is that close we discussed the possibility before we started recording that it could have been a draw and how that could have screwed Dan Henderson's plans for retirement, maybe more than anything else, because then you feel like you got to come back and fight Michael Bisping again. As it stands, he came up a little bit short, and we we have to take him at his word uh, at his retirement. But at the same time, man, just like we said about Michael Bisping, these credentials for Dan Henderson are are, are pretty impressive. You know, UFC 17 middleweight tournament winner, Pride FC welterweight tournament winner. Pride welterweight champion, Pride middleweight champion, strike force light heavyweight champion. And then obviously he comes back to the UFC kind of in the twilight of his career, uh, where he doesn't put up the greatest record of all time. But at the same time, after going three and seven in his last 10 fights, the guy still winds up with a career record of 32 and 15, which is, you know, he won just a little bit more than twice as often as he lost. Yeah. So not too shabby. And not to mention was in one of the greatest mixed martial arts fights of all times in that fight with uh, Shogun Hua at uh, UFC 139. Yeah. So I, uh, I'll be honest with you. I honestly don't know how we uh, rate the guy at this point, but maybe it's just too early to say, maybe you got to give it a little bit of time and then uh, reflect on where you think Dan Henderson stands uh, in the pantheon. Uh, can we talk for a second about how Dan Henderson ends essentially his entire MMA career with the cartwheel kick? Yeah. Which, yes. Why do I feel like he just won a bet when he did that? Or either won a bet or successfully completed a dare. Yeah. Or like that had been the th- he'd been thinking about that for years. <laughs> yes. So he's like, one of these times I'm going to go out there and throw that cartwheel kick. One of, and then when he, he heard the clacker telling him he had 10 seconds left in his career, that was the thing that came to his mind. He's it's been, now and it's now or never on the, on the cartwheel kick. Been dreaming about that cartwheel kick since 1998. Finally did it. It's also, it's weird that like at times Dan Henderson looks like the only game plan is to land the right hand, right? Especially I remember the, you know, the strike force fight against Jake Shields 
where uh, Dan Henderson almost won right at the beginning. Uh, it was for the Strike Force middleweight title. He lost his middleweight title to Jake Shields. He almost knocked him out right at the beginning, and then Shields kind of started taking Henderson down. And it was like you could see Dan Henderson, Olympic wrestler, just be like, well, shit, like, <laughs> this isn't going to work out. Like, my only plan was to land the right hand. So it's kind of funny to me that like maybe plan A is is land the right hand and then we go immediately to plan B is the cartwheel kick. <laughs> like those are the only two things he's bringing to the table. And if one doesn't work, he's got to throw the other one. And one almost worked. All right, well, do you want to do are you fucking kidding me? And then we can move on to round number 3 because I know we've got a joint are you fucking kidding me this week. Yeah. So do you want to just lay it on us? Well, I think we just have to do an are you fucking kidding me to everything that's going on with Mike Perry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it seems like he is a very good fighter, has a lot of power. We we saw him uh, in that fight with uh, Danny Roberts on the prelims, which was an awesome back and forth fight. Uh, he eventually gets the knockout, and you you look at him; he's got an undefeated record. He's knocking fools out, and you're like, this guy seems like he's going to be around for a while, and he could really go places. And then basically everything you learn about him personally makes it really hard to be excited about that. Yeah, I would say aside from being like a seemingly, seemingly like quasi interesting prospect at 170 pounds, we don't really know anything good about Mike Perry yet, right? Like he hits hard, I guess, is about the nicest thing that you can say about the guy at this point. But you're right to say that like so far in his short UFC career at every bend in the road, something has happened to undermine like the success in the cage. You got the thing where his corner man is uh, making racist comments toward uh, Hung Yu Lim, I believe it was, and then uh, Mike Perry's very unconvincing explanation of that. You've got a bunch of old social media posts of him using the N-word. Also, he shows up for this fight with his nickname Platinum tattooed over his right eye yeah. on his face, Chad, yep. which always tells you this person is headed in a very positive direction. Yeah, like, you know, I don't want to, like, bang on anybody else's appearance. Like, that's not what we're all about here at the Co-Main Event Podcast. But at the same time... choices, however. At the same time, if that, uh, at least in our view, appears to be, like, the first thing you do when you hit the big time, like, it's like you say, I can't wait till I get that UFC knockout of the night check and I'm going to get my nickname tattooed above my eye. I do have questions about that, man. That leads me to question what's going on lifestyle-wise. And then... uh the Instagram pic. Did you see that? Yeah. Right before we came on the air here? Appeared and to be Mike Perry in blackface? People said afterwards that that was like, hey, that was a mask, so it's not technically blackface, although the hashtag he used does incorporate the N-word, so you wonder about that. And then there's a different one, uh, another social media pic that incorporates the N-word. I guess you just have to say, are you fucking kidding me, Mike Perry? Are you trying to be the least likable fighter on the UFC roster? You fucking kidding me? It's that seems like a hard one to keep him around after this latest thing, but I guess we'll see. We will see. Maybe knocking dudes out cures cures all ills. As we've seen, it cure cures some ills. That's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Uncle Ben, your boy, the dream catcher, the young vagabond, sweet and sassy, sweet and sassy, Gagard Musasi appears to have turned a couple of corners at the same time. And frankly, I couldn't be more into it. Guy goes out there and gets uh, a business-like but impressive second-round TKO victory over the ghost of Vitor Belfort on Saturday at UFC 204, extends his current UFC run to three straight victories. Uh, this is obviously, I guess, the biggest, you know, rankings-wise, the biggest win of Musasi's career. And maybe just as importantly starts giving us a little something something on the personality end of things and like you know not making a 180 degree jump away from the stone-faced uh morose Gegard Musasi that we are used to seeing but but like just kind of taking that that to the next level yes which i think is an important thing to do uh and man i don't know if you were looking for a dude uh, on this UFC 204 card that you thought, yeah, man, that's the that's the breakout win for this guy. I think you might say it was Gegard Mousasi. Yeah, I, you know, I remember once Chael Sonnen saying that he felt like in order to be an interesting character who people cared about, the trick was not to just create some uh, bullshit personality that uh, you thought people would be into, but to take your existing personality and just crank up the volume a little bit. It seems like that's what we saw there from Gegard Musasi, And it felt genuine. Like you've been able for a while now, and it's been one of my kind of running uh, guilty pleasures is look, reading Gegard Musasi interviews or watching them on video and appreciating his just glum assessment of where he stands in the UFC. Right. He did it before this fight, right? Yeah. When somebody asked him what he thought, how, where it would leave him if he beat Vitor Belfort, and his reply was, nowhere. Yeah, it takes me nowhere. Um, or when he was talking about the state of the middleweight division and how maybe he could win this fight and get a title shot, but then named all these other people who would probably get it before him. Like, I love pessimist Gegard Mousasi. Uh, it just speaks to, I guess, the inner pessimist in me. And then to hear him also go out there and just with this kind of like a little bit pissed off, but mostly just resigned air about, you know, hey, if you're throwing cans of monster energy around, maybe you get more attention. But everybody in here knows I could beat Bisping. So come on. What are we doing here? Uh, I mean, that feels like uh, he's filling a gap that we didn't have as far as interesting UFC personalities. Yeah, he will flip the double bird at the weigh-in, I believe, before this fight. And then my personal favorite was when he gave Vitor Belfort the finger wag during this fight. <laughs> when Belfort comes out and gives the uh, what passes for the B Vitor Belfort barrage of punches, the blitz of punches here in 2016, he does that. And Musasi, who really put on a terrific performance all the way through in this fight, I would say. Uh, Musasi easily parries it, gets out of the way, and then he kind of does the finger wag as if to say, that thing you do? Is not going to work tonight, and it didn't, and it did not. So I was into that, and then you know when he when he gives the spiel about Monster Energy drinks, or we know who the real fighters are. He also said people are stupid. Yes, was his quote coming out of that one as to why uh, people are preoccupied with with personalities like Conor McGregor. Yeah, and why they just can't stop talking about Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather, which I agree with you there. People are stupid. Well, the good thing for Gegard Mousasi here is that he gets this win over Vitor Belfort, who maybe is not the Vitor Belfort of old and is not, you know, at the top of his game. But at the same time, Belfort is one of those dudes 
where it feels like people are falling all over themselves to give him title shots, right? Like, you felt like if Vitor Belfort had come out and knocked out Gegard Mousasi in this fight, well, he would have been right back in the mix. So Mousasi puts on this this stellar performance, knocks out Vitor Belfort, and he is, you know, once this championship carousel stops spinning, we think somewhere early in 2017, once we settle all this business between Rockhold and Weidman and Souza and Romero and, and everybody else. That's a hell of a carousel. Uh, I could spin for a while. It could, but you'd think, you know, barring any kind of delay, it's possible Gegard Mousasi could be one of the highest ranked middleweights coming off a win once all that plays out. So, you know, if the winner of either Rockhold and Souza or Weidman and Romero gets the next title shot, uh, it's possible that other dude will need something to do. Yeah, and, and this is this does seem like one of those situations where you want to stay healthy and stay by the phone uh, if you're Gegard Mousasi, because who knows what could happen. The thing that I was kind of uh, amazed by when I went back and looked at him on paper was, you know what Gegard Mousasi's official MMA professional record is? I do, because I'm looking at it right now. 46 and 2. Yep. That's 40-6 and 2 draws. The guy so has 40 almost six win 50 damn fights, and he's 31. That's the thing about Musasi is that here's a dude who has been one of the guys that people have been waiting to break out for what seems like years now, you know, going all the way back to the days when he fought mostly in Japan and, and uh, in Europe, and he was making stops in Dream and M1 and Bodog. Uh, you know, we always thought this seems like a guy who could really make an impact at the highest level. And he won a few strike force fights. Uh, he even beat big daddy, Gary Goodridge in a heavyweight fight in dream in 2009, you know, maybe a flagging version of, of big daddy Goodridge wins, wins a few more fights in strike force. And then his UFC career got off to a kind of on again, off again, start. So we've been waiting for him to put it together for a while. Now it seems like this is as close to him doing that as we, as we've seen thus far, and you look and you notice, oh, the guy just turned 31 a yeah. couple of months ago. So he seems to be in the catbird seed in more ways than one. Like this this could be – if you were waiting for Gegard Mousasi to heat up or break out, it could be happening. One of my favorite Gegard Mousasi memories that I think I've mentioned before is uh, I was at that fight in San Diego, the Strike Force one, where it was the headliner was Nick Diaz and Paul Daly in that awesome fight. And Gegard Mousasi fought Keith Jardine on that one. And everybody thought – Musasi was just kind of kind of run him over. They fought to a draw um, that I think I can't remember exactly, but I think everybody also felt like maybe Musasi should have won, but it was a, a majority draw. And then after the press conference, I went up there to ask him a few questions because it didn't seem like people really talked too much uh, to him during the press conference. And he was just kind of sitting there with his face down, and his corner man was trying to cheer him up. Um, and then when I would say, you know, I would start asking questions about it, and he was just very glum about the entire performance. And I think at some point I said something like, well, I don't know if it was really that bad. And his corner man said, see? <laughs> like we were both trying to cheer Gegard Mousasi. Man, I tell you, when he and Belfort were up there for the for the press conference and the weigh-in photos, especially in their outfits where I tweeted that it looked like they had been in a boy band that had a particularly nasty breakup. But like uh, that looked like go stand up there with your cousin at a wedding so we can take your picture, right? <laughs> Both those guys just kind of okay. Belfort wearing the like baggy snow hat and Musasi wearing his one good shirt buttoned all the way up. Both just looking glum as all get out. <laughs> 
Uh, do you, let's spend well, at least one minute talking about Vitor Belfort here. Obviously, he, he may have reached his zenith during the modern career of Vitor Belfort in 2013 when he knocked out uh, Michael Bisping, Luke Rockhold, and Dan Henderson all with head kicks right in a row, uh, all in Brazil, and then took all of 2014 off after the UFC and the Nevada State Athletic Commission both banned testosterone replacement therapy, I believe, in February of 2014. Since then, the last two years, he is one and three. Uh, and has looked like a shrinking version of himself ever since. The one win is over Dan Henderson, again, by head kick uh, and punches. But is Vitor Belfort just cooked here or or what? Because he did not look, you know, even in his, like, loss to Weidman at 187, he still looked like he had some fire. In this fight, he tried to have some fire, but it just seemed like maybe the speed was there, but the power was not. I don't know. Well, it also seemed like it was a kind of a strange strategy for him, didn't it? It seemed like he he was more of a, a counter puncher, a, a counter striker in this one, which is not the Vitor Belfort that I know. And I think the the scariest Vitor Belfort is you know early round Vitor Belfort, yeah. where he makes you feel like you're stuck on the train tracks, and and here comes the train. Uh, and he he catches guys that way. He blitzes them. Uh, he comes on really really hard and strong, and they have to kind of weather that. And some people can, some people even against Weidman. Uh, Weidman had to weather that uh, that early barrage. And here it seemed like he was waiting uh, for Musasi to do something, and then he'd he'd kind of cue the barrage. And that just doesn't seem like a style that really fits him. It also made me wonder as I was watching this because at times you see him, it feels like he still has some of the moves. It doesn't feel like he has skill-wise deteriorated that much. I mean, he looks really, really different. It made me wonder how much of the the PED stuff for him was a confidence thing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Belford has the kind of history where you never know, right? Like when he was on something or when he wasn't. But it, except for the, when he got on TRT during, during 2013 when, and 2012, when you saw this really noticeable change in his performances and in his body. But like kind of the book on Belford going all the way back to when Randy Couture first wrote it, I think at UFC 15, was like, yeah, kind of a confidence thing, like kind of a confidence and cardio thing. Like if you could drag him into deep water, if it didn't seem like things were going his way, like he would he would become very beatable. Uh and it's going to be interesting what happens with him moving forward, 39 years old, all of these losses, Weidman, Jacare Souza, now Gegard Mousasi against really, really high-level guys. Uh, so we'll just have to see what happens with Vitor Belfort moving forward. Uh, do you want to do Just Saying Stuff, then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. What's your Just Saying Stuff for this week? Well, ben? Chad, I don't know if you heard that uh, Conor McGregor had his day in court via phone uh, with the Nevada Wait. State Athletic Commission. Quote-unquote qu- qu- court. By That's court, I mean kangaroo court. Okay. Uh, and initially, the Nevada State Attorney General's office recommended a punishment uh, of a twenty-five thousand dollar fine for the throwing of the bottles and the Monster Energy drink at Nate Diaz, uh, plus twenty-five hours of community service. Uh, then McGregor's attorney, uh, you know, talked about the possibility of some legal action uh, in his defense. Then McGregor said. Hey, you know, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I'll take whatever punishment you want to give me. Then the commissioners talked about it for a little while uh, and used a variety of factors to arrive at a fine six times higher than the one initially suggested. And they wanted to make, at least Pat Lundvall wanted to make it even higher than that. She wanted to do 300 grand. Instead, they settled on 150 grand, you know, 5% of his disclosed purse there. Uh, and doubled the community service hours, and also are going to make him be in an anti-bullying PSA, which part of his money will pay for. Uh, I guess I'm just saying, hey, Nevada, you know New York just opened up, right? 
You know, this guy could sell out pretty much anywhere. You know that everybody is kind of clued into the idea that you just make up these rules as you go when it comes to punishing fighters, and they all realize that you seem to get mad at anybody who even offers a defense, and you just come up with punishments that have been described before by an actual judge as arbitrary and capricious. I'm just saying, there are other places to fight, and I think a lot of people are starting to realize that. Just, I'm just saying. Man, wow, just saying. Well, Ben, speaking of New York, the UFC rolled out another one of its big budget commercials for UFC 205 this past weekend. And this one, like the one that they made before for Jose Aldo versus Conor McGregor, seemed to traffic heavy, heavily in dramatic walking. Just people walking around dramatically as shit throughout this entire thing. So this week, I guess I'm just saying, how does a multi-million dollar commercial like this one manage to be so fucking goofy while at the same time somehow totally nailing the personalities of everybody involved? I mean, you had Wonderboy Thompson walking through Times Square with his tourist backpack on, which... Nailed it. You had Tyron Woodley walking around super dramatically, by the way, with his sunglasses on inside. Nailed it. You had Joanna <laughs> Yedjaychik riding the subway in a full camouflage winter jacket like she's the 10th member of the Wu-Tang Clan. Nailed it. You had Eddie Alvarez stopping for coffee at an all-night diner and then just sitting contemplatively by himself in a booth, almost like he was wondering to himself, uh, I wonder whatever happened to Toby Amata. <laughs> We had some good times back in the day. Hashtag nailed it. And then you had Conor McGregor in his $20,000 suit riding around on a loading dock elevator. I mean, I guess that's perfect. So I guess this week I'm just saying, I guess I kind of love it, but somehow hate it too. I don't know. It's confusing. Just saying. That's going to do it for this, this week's co-main event podcast. Ben, we are in an unprecedented three-week break between UFC events, what with the cancellation of this weekend's uh, fight night event from Manila. So uh, ain't shit going on. Ain't shit going on. We're going to have to figure out some stuff to do, but uh, I have faith, man. I think we can do it. I also have faith that somebody's going to do something outrageous and there will be shit going on. That's one of the best reasons to have faith. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, I think the, the look on Wonder Boy, Wonder Man Thompson's face as he walks through Times Square could best be summed up as Golly G. Yeah, and then he climbs in a cab. Like, well, he heard the subways were dangerous. <laughs> he heard there are people well, sitting around there in camouflage jackets like the Wu-Tang The subways are dangerous.